Welcome to the Blockdown Podcast, brought to you by EOK Digital, the number one blockchain PR and communications agency. Every week, we're sharing pearls of wisdom about the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast so we can bring you even more great content. And we are back. The time that I have waited all day for is now here. We have an epic cast for our next fireside chat. The title of this fireside chat is Bitcoin Maximalism versus Bitcoin Minimalism, a deep dive into the pros and cons of each side of the Bitcoin debate. Our host for this one is a Christian, a father, a husband, a seasoned business builder, investor and author. He is a prominent blockchain and cryptocurrency educator on TV, YouTube, TradingView, and uh, throughout the world. He is a very successful serial entrepreneur. He is the builder and co-founder of the Monarch Wallet and Monarch Pay, and is a member of the C4 Crypto Consortium. Please welcome our host, Robert Crypto Beatles. Our next guest, uh, guest we are welcoming back uh, after a very, very quick turnaround. Mr. Jimmy Sung is back for this one. And joining Jimmy is a man who needs no introduction in the Bitcoin and blockchain world, but I'm going to introduce him anyways. He is among the top recognized serial Bitcoin advocates and entrepreneurs. He founded Shapeshift in August 2014 as an elegant, secure, and fast solution to digital asset exchanges. He has been a featured guest on Bloomberg, Fox Business, CNBC, BBC Radio, uh, and numerous blockchain industry conferences. His past affiliations include BitInstant, uh, Coinapult, and Satoshi Dice, which was responsible for most of the world's Bitcoin transactions in 2012 and 13. Please welcome the man, Eric Voorhees. Jimmy, Robert, Eric, welcome to Blockdown 2020 and take it away. What is going on, crypto family? So today we've got a fireside chat with the one and only Eric Voorhees and Jimmy Sung. I um, kind of moderate of sorts. I just ask impartial questions. I really don't weigh in too much on anything. Let them kind of speak their minds. It's a pretty spirited and fiery debate on Bitcoin maximalism versus Bitcoin minimalism. So make sure you check it out. I'll see you over there. What is going on, crypto family? So today we've got Jimmy and we've got Eric with us. They obviously don't need an introduction, but I'm going to let them do it anyway. So if you would, Jimmy, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into crypto, all that kind of cool stuff. Just kind of keep it brief and then we'll jump into the chat after Eric tells us. Yeah, I'm a Bitcoin developer, educator, and entrepreneur. I've written a couple of books on Bitcoin, and I've been um, teaching courses and uh, you know doing lots of stuff related to Bitcoin for the uh, last seven years or so. So that's that's what I do. Awesome. What about you, Eric? Yeah, so I'm Eric Voorhees. Uh, I've been in love with Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem since 2011. And I'm the founder and CEO of Shapeshift. So that has been my sole project for the last little over six years at this point. Yeah, very, very abbreviated bio. You've done a lot more than that for sure, both you guys. But uh, I guess today we're going to talk about in this fireside chat, we're going to talk about Bitcoin maximalism versus Bitcoin minimalism. And, you know, we're pretty much all familiar with Bitcoin and then its mysterious, you know, beginnings and the value it can offer to the world. 
but there are a ton of different blockchains out there. And yes, they may not have the decentralized you know, nature of Bitcoin, but when you look at uh, Bitcoin's core dev team, you look at the mining teams, one can kind of argue that it's far from completely decentralized as well. So let's chat a little bit about uh, Bitcoin maximalism versus minimalism. But first, you know, or I guess a little bit of also too what's going on in the world. So we'll start off with Jimmy here and we'll just, um, you know, start off by asking him, you know, outside of Bitcoin, are there any other blockchains that you support um, and, and why? Uh, I don't support anything other than Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, the reason is the it's, uh, you know, people call me a Bitcoin maximalist or whatever. It's, it's not a, it's not a prescription. It's a description, right? Like uh, the, the reason why Bitcoin is interesting is because it's decentralized. There's no single point of failure. Every other blockchain has some single point of failure, whether it be a foundation or, um, you know, a, a dev team that forces hard forks on everybody else and so on. Um, and those things essentially are not very different than fiat money. I mean, the only, only thing that makes it different than strict fiat money is that there's no legal tender laws forcing you to use it. Although, you know, they try their hardest by creating a quote-unquote use case uh, into their particular ecosystem as ICO tokens tend to do and so on. But I mean, they're, they're really not that different. I, other than the fact that it's voluntary to go and get into those ecosystems, they're, they're centralized as any fiat money is. So for me, it's not interesting. Uh, and it's it's not, uh, you're, you're really just enriching and giving the money printer to a different person than uh, than the Federal Reserve, which is, which is the situation that we have here in the United States. So, uh, for me, Bitcoin is the one uh, coin that is decentralized, and it is interesting. Everything else is kind of a centralized fiati mess. Got you. Which uh, what do you think about it, Eric? Uh, these other cryptocurrencies are not at all like fiat, and. I think it's important to understand that centralization is not a, an on or off thing. Things are not centralized or decentralized. Um, Bitcoin is very fairly categorized, I think, is the most, central, the most decentralized of all the cryptos. Um, but it is not, not correct to say that everything other than Bitcoin is centralized. Um, I, I would challenge Jimmy to name the central point of failure in, in Monero, for example, or to describe why he thinks the Ethereum Foundation, which he's obliquely referencing here, if he believes that that actually controls Ethereum and, and how that works and why that's different than, um, than Bitcoin's community of, of engineers. Uh, these things are all, all gradients, and I think they often change over time as well. So Bitcoin's own centralization has, uh, has changed since it started. It started as a coin with one engineer, which was Satoshi, and others, others joined in, and it became more broadly used and more broadly developed over time. Um, I think other, change, other chains follow that. Now, to, uh, to Jimmy's point, there are many cryptocurrency projects which are very centralized. And, and that, so I don't mean to diminish that. Um, people need to be very careful. There are some coins that are just flat out centrally controlled um, by literally a single person. Um, but that does not mean all of them are. So it's a nuanced, a nuanced understanding. And I think many of these projects deserve a lot of attention um, and then you can form your own conclusions. Just to kind of follow up on that, though, what do you think, you know, Bitcoin's biggest weakness is? Bitcoin's biggest weakness against other, other digital assets? Yeah. I mean, I, I think its biggest weakness is, is its cost of transactions um, because they are expensive to, to send, basically. 
Now, does that mean that, they, that Bitcoin is worse than other blockchains? No, these things are trade-offs. And if you're sending $100,000 or a million dollars, a 50 cent fee on the Bitcoin network is, is meaningless. It doesn't matter. But if you're trying to send $2 to someone, that becomes a problem. So I think, in it, uh, I think Bitcoin's biggest weakness is that element. Um, but it's designed in that way intentionally. And by being expensive in that way, it's gotten certain other advantages that I think are worthy of consideration. What what blockchains aside from Bitcoin do you think kind of addresses those problems and allows for you know use? So you got the the transaction costs, and obviously there's speed that's an issue as well. What blockchains out there do you think do a good job of this? They do it all with different trade offs, right? And each of these blockchains has different uh, different speeds of transactions, and those transactions have different levels of security based on the the blocks that you get, right? So. Um, Ethereum, you'll get a block roughly every 15 seconds. Now, does that mean Ethereum is better because its blocks are faster? No, it just means that it's it's different. It means you'll get a first confirmation of an Ethereum transaction much faster than a Bitcoin confirmation. And so for certain applications, that's really useful. Um, but it's it's not something that's like one is better than the other. I think even you know Litecoin is a really good example here because Litecoin is basically the same as Bitcoin in most of its... Um, most of its design other than it is four times faster. Why hasn't Litecoin overtaken Bitcoin? Because speed of transactions is not the only important thing. Cost of transactions is not the only important thing. What do you think, what do you think Jimmy? Anything you want to add to any of the responses? Yeah, uh, so I would strongly disagree with Eric on pretty much everything that he said with re regard to centralization. Centralization, decentralization is definitely binary. You either have possession of your own coins or you don't. Um, right now, I control my own coins. Um, if, if, I, if I had my coins on Shapeshift or on Coinbase or some other place, then I wouldn't have control over my own coins. That, that much we're, is we're very obvious. Well, I mean, but, but you know, if it, 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 okay, so maybe not Shapeshift, but if I had it on Coinbase or Bitfinex or where, wherever, if you, if I had uh, my coins on those services, then I would not have control my, over my own coins. That's what you would call centralized. Now, these coins, um, they, you either have a single point of failure or you don't. If you have a single point of failure, then you are centralized, uh, regardless of whatever other, other uh, what, uh, what I would call like decentralized theater you put around it. Uh, you know, you can have a foundation that's supposed to be decentralized and all these people that are uh, differently elected and so on, but it's, it's still centralized in a very practical sense. Um, uh, now, Eric, Eric uh, pointed out two coins and challenged me to point out the central, uh, centralized nature of both of these, so I'll, I'll tell you exactly. Uh, Monero, they hard fork every six months, and we, we know this for a fact that they, they uh, that in order to stay on the Monero network, you have to upgrade your client. And if you don't upgrade your client, then you're kind of out of luck. You you uh, you know you may um, uh, be listening on uh, you know transactions that like don't apply to you because the blockchain basically goes along with whatever the Monero core devs say it is, um, and based on the hard forking nature of what, whatever it is that they do. So, um, if, and you know, they, they've had multiple hard forks in the past where, you know, somebody tried to continue uh, the old chain. Uh, of course, those weren't successful, but that tells you that they control what, what, what Monero is. If, if uh, for example, the Monero core devs decided, hey, uh, we're going to print like uh, 10 million Monero to ourselves for uh, whatever reason and hide it from everybody. They could do that and no, uh, unless there were people 
that uh, you know audited the code and figured out exactly what's going on, no one would be the wiser, and like you, you would have uh, some insane inflation without anyone knowing. I'm not saying that they would do that, but that's something that they certainly have the option to do. And it's uh, in in the same way, very very similar to kind of like trusting that the Fed won't print another six trillion dollars. Um, Ethereum Foundation, they they too have hard forks, and they they too like sort of have a roadmap, and they say that they're going to go towards Ethereum 2.0 and so on. All of these uh, organizations sort of control the coin and uh, decide on what direction that they're going to go. Um, Ethereum, famously, the Ethereum Foundation and uh, Vitalik Buterin in particular, um, you know, back in 2016 had the DAO incident, and they decided that this class of transactions was not something that they wanted on their chain or uh, deserve to be uh, reversed based on whatever judgment that they, they decided to make. And therefore, they, they uh, change the ledger to whatever it is that they wanted. This is not any different than uh, the U.S. government telling you that they don't like you and they don't like what you're, uh, you're trying to do politically or if, you, if they accuse you of selling drugs or doing um, you know, child pornography or whatever and seizing your bank account. That's essentially what they did with, uh, with the Dow. Who's, so, who's they? I mean, both of those, um, well, the, the Ethereum Foundation and the, and the people that decided to uh, hard fork Ethereum back in 2016. So what both about of the those miners? are very, very, huh? What about the miners? Do you think the foundation just guides things without the miners or the users? Well, I mean, fact of the matter is, if, you, if you're running a full node on Ethereum, you have to follow the Ethereum Foundation's uh, software that they, they, they put out. Otherwise, you're not on Ethereum anymore. And they hold the copyright to the name Ethereum. They do all of this stuff in order to make it so that you, know, you, you can't really like fork Ethereum very easily. I, I mean, essentially what they're doing is they're centralized? They're the government of Ethereum, and they get to do whatever the hell they want. And they and we've seen it multiple times. So, I mean, to to say that it's a gradient, it's it's really pretty simple. It's either you have control over your own coins or you don't. In the case of something like Ethereum or Monero, I mean, despite what you may think, you actually don't control your own coins because people that uh, you know the before the DAO incident, there were there were a bunch of people that thought that they had Ethereum, but then after they rolled those transactions back, and uh, as a result of their piss poor security, they they. Um, you know, they uh, they ended up like having to revert that so that uh, those people didn't get that. They reset the ledger. That, I mean, so, Jimmy, it, it's it's to me that, that very well. I mean, I I hope uh, I, I I tried not to do that while you were talking. So, um, but I yeah, go ahead. Why don't you go? Okay. So, did not Bitcoin hard fork in its early days? Um, as far as I I know, there were there was one in 2010 that was a uh, that could be considered a hard fork. I mean, there there's some up to some um, some debate about whether or not it actually was according to the strict definition of a hard fork. But you can you can pretty much run any Bitcoin client. Um, there, like starting from about 0 0.3, um, you can even go further back if you modify a couple of things. Uh, uh, just and and those are mostly like uh, database limits or something like that, and it'll it'll still be uh, validating everything up until today. You can't say that for any like Monero client or Ethereum client. Uh, with Bitcoin, you are master of your own node. With uh, with all of these other coins uh, like Monero and Ethereum, like you mentioned, you are not master of your own node. If you, if you're running Monero from before a hard fork. 
you're not in sync with everybody else. And, uh, you know, you don't control your own uh, node. You don't, you don't get to validate your own stuff. Um, you're, you just sort of have to trust somebody else. And this is why, like, vast majority of people don't run an Ethereum node. They rely on Amphura, which is, like, completely centralized. It's got, it's got like, multiple single points of failure and not just one. So um, to me, like, uh, th those, those tokens that you mentioned as being uh, decentralized are completely centralized. And, I mean, calling it a gradient is more like, okay, how, to what, how many more single points of failure are there uh, versus having zero like Bitcoin has? So, Jimmy, if you could add like any kind of functionality from another cryptocurrency to Bitcoin, what functionality would it be? Um, I don't see any functionality in other coins that was that useful. I mean, to some degree, some some level of confidential transaction is de desirable, but uh, but there's a theorem, um, you know, with regard to cryptocurrency that you you have perfectly binding, uh, Bitcoin is currently bound to 21 million, or you have perfectly blinding. Uh, that is, you you have all of the privacy properties of uh, something like, say, Zcash shielded transactions or Monero um, confidential transactions. I, like So like if you have to choose, I, I'd rather take the perfectly binding every time. Um, we're, we're getting towards the point where we'll have a lot more privacy with something like ta Taproot, um, the ability to... Um, essentially uh, like not leak any information uh, when you're receiving and so on. So um, I mean, to me, uh, like where Bitcoin is, is pretty good. Um, eventually some, uh, some even stronger privacy properties would be nice. Uh, but for me, security and the 20 binding to the 21 million are far more important. Gotcha. And, and so for those things right there, why do you think that Bitcoin really hasn't taken off yet? Why do you think people haven't really started using it in everyday commerce or just investing in it? What do you think the reason behind that is? I, I, I think it's been doing fantastic. It's only 11 years old and we're, uh, I, there's tons of people using it as a store of value every day. Uh, I, 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 I don't like this uh, narrative of it needs to be a method of payment in, in order to be, it needs to be a method of payment network in order to be valuable at all. No, it's, it, it's a store of value. And the fact of the matter is, in today's world, store of value is the one thing that is very, very hard to get in a Keynesian economy. Um, essentially, every... Um, Every government uh, encourages lots and lots of spending, and don't. Uh, and because of their sort of Keynesian economics uh, philosophy, they they discourage any uh, place where you can kind of hold money. The only real places that you can do that today are real estate, stocks, and uh, and maybe gold. Um, and it's not a coincidence that those uh, those markets tend to go up whenever there's monetary expansion like we're uh, experiencing right now. Uh, so in a sense, like store of value technology, there, there, there really aren't very many good places. And Bitcoin is one of the few um, that, that's actually beaten the monetary expansion. If you look at the um, you know, Dow from 1959 to 2019, 2020, uh, you know, it's, it's expanded at the exact same rate as the M2 money supply, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. The M2 money supply has gone from 280 billion to about 16.5 trillion last time I checked. The Dow Jones has gone up about at about the same rate, um, 6.7% a year. That's monetary expansion, not CPI, which is a different measure. Uh, but I mean, that, that and real estate is less than that. It's, uh, it's uh, like historically been about 5% a year. Um, every like there, there really aren't very good stores of value. Whereas if you're, if you're, 
if you're trying to make a method of payment technology, you're competing against literally hundreds of other uh, other players, right? Like it, all over the world, there's not only credit cards and Visa and MasterCard and whatever, but there's also stuff like, um, you know, PayPal and Venmo and Cash App and Apple Pay and Samsung Pay. And if you go to different countries, you have Octopus Card and uh, M-Pesa and sure. WeChat and all these other things. Like it, it's, it's not a, an arena that I don't think we want to compete in. And it, and at that point, it becomes much more about merchant adoption. And vast majority of people don't want to spend Bitcoin in that way. They, they're using it as a hedge or a, a way to store value. So um, to me, uh, like your, your question is, um, is very much ignorant of how people are actually using Bitcoin and what like sort of what do you people, say to people like Roger Bear kind of want it to be. So what do you what do you say to people that thought it was a store of value that paid twenty thousand for it or anything over seven thousand and now they're in the hole in the red? How is that a store of value? I mean, Eric, well, can I, I jump so, in? Well, so I, I mean, Eric, do you want yeah. to answer that first or? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with Jimmy that that for a crypto to be a success doesn't mean it must satisfy one particular use case. In this case, the use as payment that I think a lot of people like to talk about in the early days of Bitcoin. Um, hasn't hasn't largely succeeded, but yet, despite that, Bitcoin is still very strong and is still by far the leading cryptocurrency and is worth $100 billion. So I think it's it's fair to say that it is being used as a store of value, and it it works for all sorts of uh, all sorts of money transfers other than small payments. Um, I think the fact that someone bought it at 20k and it's worth 7k today does not mean it's not a store of value. It means it's volatile, and what you want to look at is over time. Is it able to store value better than other things? Bitcoin has easily stored value and not just stored it, but increased value better than any other asset in the history of mankind over the last decade. So I think on that, it wins hands down. Gotcha. What do you think, um, you know, the Fed, the printing these trillions of dollars right now, what do you think that's going to do to Bitcoin or for Bitcoin? Uh, man, this whole printing thing is, uh, is really wild. I think the Federal Reserve and the banks of the world started trying this back in you know, the late 2000s when the last financial crisis happened, and they realized that they could totally get away with it, that people would cheer them on, that it would feel good, and uh, the consequences of that haven't been felt yet in any meaningful way that people have seen. So they're going to just go 10x that this time. And I think those of us who understand how money works realize that you can't create prosperity by printing money that just changes who owns the value at, at a given time. Um, I guess suffice to say, I, I don't hold dollars over the long term. I think, I think fiat is a, a horrible scam. Uh, I think people will learn over time that it is, is worth nothing. It is created out of thin air uh, and it will be debased perpetually as it has been ever since it was disconnected from gold in the early seventies. Gotcha. And then, I mean, as far as like, um, say cryptocurrencies get adopted, you know, it's kind of like an alternative to fiat currencies to avoid a crisis like this. How would, you know, we solve the volatility problem in cryptocurrencies so it doesn't become like a Fed printing problem that we see now? Yeah, I don't so think volatility... I... Oh, go ahead, Jerry. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the, the volatility is is something that everyone points to. But really, what are you volatile against? I mean, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, whether you owned it in 2011 or 2015 or now. Um, the, the thing that people complain about is that it's not it's volatile against the U.S. dollar. And and that that's the thing that uh, and that's because it's the U.S. dollar is more or less the unit of account all around the world. Um, you know, you, if, if you're buying oil anywhere in the world, you pretty much have to pay in the U.S. dollar. So that's that's how it works. Um, um, but the reason why Bitcoin is more volatile than all of these other currencies, um, you know, especially like uh, other fiat currencies, is because it, there, there's no central bank, there's no there, there's no central controller. Um, so if you if you look at something like the Japanese, yeah, and the Jam, uh, the Bank of Japan makes sure that they uh, they keep the peg range uh, between the um, you know the yen and the dollar uh, right around roughly about a hundred yen per dollar, and they they've been doing that for many decades now, and they and they do this by, um, you know, if it gets too high, then, uh, you know, if it's too many yen per dollar, then they'll, uh, they'll go and sell some of their treasuries off. If it's too, too few yen per dollar, they'll print more yen and so on. And every central bank does this as a way to uh, decrease the volatility of their particular currency. Now, Bitcoin doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a centralized committee or anything like that. So their, their supply, uh, it, it's all, it, almost all entirely done by the, uh, by the market. And there's no uh, entity trying to stabilize that, uh, that amount. And it gets into bubbles and frenzies and all this other stuff that we've been seeing over the last 10 years. Um, but uh, that, that means more volatility, but that's, that's okay. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll point out right here that a lot of other currencies, especially, um, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, Ethi the, the DAI stuff on uh, Ethereum and, and stuff like that, they actually do have a centralized committee that, that does keep a peg, right? Like the, the DAI keeps its peg to the dollar literally by having um, the, the, you know, decentralized finance, uh, having a centralized committee go to each exchange and making sure that, uh, you know, whenever the die falls too low, that, you know, they, they pump, uh, pump more of it in. And if it, if it gets too high, then they, they buy it off the market and so on. Um, these things all work until it doesn't, right? Like until the central bank essentially like runs out of reserves. So essentially what you're doing is pushing out the volatility until later. And this is essentially what's happening with all of these, um, you know, uh, fiat currencies that are not the U.S. dollar is that they, they they do have sort of like sudden black swan events where you know things will go absolutely haywire and you know the peg will break and it'll uh, drop fifty percent in a single day. Uh, I mean that that sort of thing is completely normal in, in the fiat world. So to to say oh okay well you know Bitcoin sucks because it, it has this volatility well. I mean, you, you could have lower volatility by centralizing it, but that's not a trade-off that I'd ever make. And, uh, and even if you do do that, you're, you're just pushing out the volatility until a block swan event later in, uh, later in its life cycle. So uh, in a sense, like it's, um, it, you're, you're doing what every uh, you know, centralized government has been doing with their budget ever since the advent of fiat money, which is to push out anything bad until for as long as possible. And, uh, and to sort of... Uh, add on to Eric's answer from earlier about you know all of all of this uh, money printing. How's it going to you know affect things and so on? I I expect um, you know asset prices on um, 
uh, you know, stuff like real estate and stocks to go up because that's where the money always ends up uh, whenever you have monetary expansion. Um, and basically, since uh, since 1917, the U.S. dollar has been expanding at some insane rate for most of that time. Um, and you know, the measures that we have, at least the data that's available, since 1959, 6.7% monetary expansion every year. And a lot of that, uh, you know, inflation essentially or monetary expansion gets exported to third world countries because the demand for the dollar will always be there because of the, it's a unit of settlement um, internationally. Uh, but their own currency uh, tends to suffer as a result. And, uh, and what we end up seeing is that a lot of third world countries enter hyperinflation as a result of all of the monetary expansion that the U.S. is doing. So in a sense, we're exporting the inflation and allowing uh, third world countries to suffer instead of uh, the U.S. and we we haven't felt a lot of that uh, that burden and pretty much everyone in in the world kind of knows this instinctually. If you talk to anybody in a foreign country, they go, "Oh, yeah, how come the U.S. doesn't suffer whenever it does this?" But you know, we get thirty percent, uh, you know, like you know, increases in prices when uh, you know. Uh, whenever this stuff like sort of like uh, happens. And uh, this is essentially a global cantaloupe effect. All, the U.S. gets to spend the newly printed U.S. dollars first. And all of these other countries, they get it absolutely last. And they're, they're the ones that suffer. And they're, they're the ones that have to pay for all of the money printing that we're doing. And the sad fact is, uh, you know, they, it's going to continue. And the dollar hegemony is going to uh, sort of continue along its course, but um, and you know the the poorest people in the world are the ones that are going to suffer the most. You think the the U.S. or I guess the Fed, you know, should be able to print all this money? I mean, I don't know if you saw recently, but it looks like Powell with the uh, Federal Reserve says that he now has to get approval for any printing through the Treasury. So I don't know if you saw that or not. It kind of looks like it's this almost this molding between the Fed and the Treasury to where people say Trump is going to take over the uh, the Fed, make them basically accountable for all the money that they've spent, bankrupt them, and then replace it with a, a gold back or a stable you know, currency to kind of end all the stuff that you're talking about. I don't know if you've heard about heard about that or seen any of that stuff on usually not the mainstream media, but uh, independent you know, journalism, things like that, they cover that. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the Fed has always been, uh, you know, bankrupt, right? Like any central bank is by nature bankrupt because they're loaning out more money than there exists. They don't have the reserves to back up whatever it is that they're printing. And this is why you create a central bank in the first place for any country is because you don't, you want to, you want to be able to borrow um, against future stuff instead of having the money on hand. Uh, and, you know, th this is why I created the Bank of England back in like 1680 something. Um, it, it, it was uh, because the British government at at the time, wanted to spend more money that they than they had, um, ostensibly for war or some some other social program or something like that. So, um, in a sense, they're already bankrupt, and uh, it, it, the whole game is more about how how they can keep it going rather than, uh, you know, like sort of replacing it. The Fed, at least in the United States, is supposed to be independent. So they, they can do whatever the heck they want. And they have a mandate, uh, uh, mostly uh, with regard to reducing unemployment and, and things like that. So, um, you know, that's that's how they justify pretty much all of the things that they do. If you've been paying attention to the press releases that the Federal Reserve has been going, they, they always say at the end, this is according to the mandate, according to the Congressional Act, the Federal Reserve back from 1913 and so on. So, um, you know, they, they, that, they do whatever they can to do whatever it is that they're supposed to do. The vast majority of the time, they're just benefiting uh, their banker friends and large companies that can, um, 
you know, uh, that qualify for these giant loans that they're allowed to uh, take out and so on. And uh, ultimately, that ends up in some sort of nationalization of a lot of industries and so on, which I, I think we'll see with the airlines and so on. But I mean, th this is uh, this is par for the course for any fiat thing. And I want to point out, like uh, bringing it back to Bitcoin, it, it tends to happen with a lot of uh, a lot of, a lot of these quote unquote decentralized projects on uh, on a lot of these different platforms, right? Like the the fact, like as they get more into more and more into trouble, they get bought out by other sort of more centralized things. Uh, I, I think Infura got bought out by uh, you know Joe Lubin's consensus. I mean, consensus is like practically an arm of Ethereum Foundation at this point anyway. So like the the same things that we're seeing in uh, in the fiat world are happening in the altcoin world for, for that reason. It's it's very centralized and whenever things get in get crazy or in trouble or they're black swan events and a lot of things get bankrupt, it it tends to centralize even more. So um, yeah I mean you're you're just kind of having to pay the piper a little later. Yeah interesting points. Anything you want to add there, Eric? Yeah, um, I I definitely take issue with this whole notion that all these coins are centralized just because they have a different model or a different team structure than than Bitcoin. So maybe we can get into that a little more in a second. But on the on this point about volatility, um, Bitcoin's volatility is not because it doesn't have a central bank behind it. Gold does not have a central bank behind it, and it is very stable over the long term. It's the most stable asset. Uh, relative to almost anything else over thousands of years. Bitcoin is volatile because it's new. It's only 10 years old. It's still finding its use cases. It's it's still a strange, interesting new thing to people. And it's growing very rapidly. So you can't expect anything with a limited supply and growing rapidly to be highly stable. If you look at Bitcoin's volatility since its founding, it has actually become increasingly stable with time. And this is to be expected as it grows in its market cap. Uh, it becomes more stable. And I imagine... 10 or 20 or 50 years from now, it'll be quite stable, perhaps the most stable asset uh, in the world. But that has to be earned with time and, and can't be designed into something. Gotcha. I'll just add that uh, central banks are buying gold and selling gold. So I, I, I would disagree with you there that there, there's no central bank sort of managing gold because they're doing it right now. Um, you know, like China's buying gold and Russia's buying gold. Other well, central banks so are Jimmy, buying, selling that... it to them and so on. Does that mean um, I mean, that that, that, I, mean I, I, I agree with you that the length of time that gold's existed probably contributes to its relative, um, you know, uh, price stability. But uh, but as far as like there being no, uh, you know, shenanigans going on in the background with central banks like actually manipulating the price of gold and so on, um, I, I I think that's actually happening right now. So um, you know, part of the stability of the price of gold is is due to central banking pressure, right? Like they, uh, if they think in their particular country that gold's too high, then they'll go sell off some of their stock of gold. Um, now, like none of the central banks, as far as we know, cur uh, currently have Bitcoin, but if they do, then I, I, I would expect that the volatility of Bitcoin would decrease um, if central banks were to do that. But uh, until then, I don't, I don't think it's gonna happen. Gotcha. If both of you guys, if you guys were both president, you know, of the United States, what would you do differently than like our current administration right now, especially dealing with this pandemic and everything going on? Feel free to, whoever wants to go first. Uh, I w if I was president of the United States, um, I would just start dismantling as many, as many departments of the government as I could before my four years was up. 
I would almost assuredly be not voted back in by doing so because everyone loves more government, more government every year. So doing so would make me very unpopular, I'm sure. But I would just uh, get a list of all the departments and I'd start crossing them off and try to wind them all down by uh, by the end of four years, whatever whatever I could do. Uh, gotcha. That would be it. So you would just you know, kind of make the government smaller. Um, that's yeah. That's wouldn't wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't that be so strange if like one year got smaller? Like uh, I don't know, like like the founding fathers envisioned it. I mean, something like that. <laughs> yeah, just it only gets bigger. Trump's made it bigger. Obama made it bigger. Bush made it bigger. The next president will make it bigger. It just gets bigger, bigger, bigger. So I would make it smaller. Funny how that works. How about you, Jimmy? Um, I mean, I, 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 I would be on board with Eric's program, honestly. Um, that, that, that's a very good way to do it. I, I would probably, like, as far as the current crisis and so on, I think the attack on civil liberties is absolutely insane. Just, uh, you know, like, people can't go swimming in the ocean by themselves, right? Like, uh, they're taking a walk on the beach and getting arrested. And, you know, uh, father is playing with his daughter in the park and they, he gets arrested, stuff like that. It's, it's just absolute insanity. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the sort of thing that you would expect in Soviet Russia, not here. So um, I, I would definitely uh, not be on board with any of that uh, and try my hardest. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much the president can really dismantle a lot of things. I, I, try, I mean, you can definitely reduce the executive branch, uh, at least the things that the executive controls. Um, but that, that would be pretty difficult. And in a sense, like the president is in many ways sort of, um, you know, they, they have to go with whatever the rest of the government does. And uh, every CEO of every company kind of instinctively knows this, that like you, you can try to lead as much as you want, but if you get resistance from the rest of your team, it's, it's going to be a very tough slog. So I suspect like trying to go and, uh, you know, dismantle absolutely everything you can is going to be met with like some, some, some serious fierce resistance. So uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the best course would be. I, I, I have heard, uh, like, that there's less government in certain things. But, I mean, who knows if that's true or whatever. I, I, there's a reason I don't pay attention to politics. Because <laughs> gotcha. it, it upsets me so much often whenever I, uh, whenever I listen to any of the news. So I, I stop paying attention to it. Gotcha. And I guess the last Bitcoin question would be, you know, Satoshi, his vision was, you know, peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. Do you think that one day we'll actually have peer-to-peer -peer digital cash as he actually envisioned or just a store of value, kind of like you spoke to earlier? Uh, do you, uh, have you read the white paper? Yeah. Okay. Well, what does it say in the first paragraph about what he meant by cash? Well, it's a transfer of, you know, money to and from, you know, person to person. Without a central, uh, without a trusted third party, that's what he meant by cash. It wasn't. It, it wasn't about like being able to like buy, buy a five dollar bag of Skittles or something. It was all about the fact that there wasn't a, a a third party intermediary in between, and that's why he used the word cash in the white paper. If you read the read the first uh, first section, um, that's that's what he meant. Is 
hey, here's uh, here's Don't this use it for thing. Skills, use it for houses. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's all about not having a third party intermediary. And cash is one thing where you don't have a third party intermediary. If I give you cash, there's nobody sitting in between. Although I, I guess we, I suppose we can argue that the Fed sits in between in some way uh, over a long period of time. But that that's the main thing that he 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 was saying. If you read the first paragraph of the of, of the white paper. Is that there's no third-party intermediary. So when, when people like uh, Roger Ver say, well, it means cash, it means like you should be able to do microtransactions or whatever, he's not reading the white paper. He's only reading the, first, uh, reading the title without knowing what it actually means. If you read the first paragraph, it clearly says it's without a third-party intermediary. Then that's the, that's the unique thing about cash that Satoshi was trying to bring into the digital realm, which, honestly, we didn't think was possible, but uh, Satoshi kind of made it possible to have a decentralized digital scarcity. Um, and as a result, uh, now, now, now you can do things without a third-party intermediary. No one, no one can stop you if you want... If I wanted to send some money to Eric, I can do that without um, having a bank in between or some other other thing in between. That's what it means by peer-to-peer -peer digital just cash, simplify. not not not, not not this other thing. Well, let me simplify it even more than I guess, because with cash, you don't have to wait 15 minutes for it to go from one person's hand to the next. So what I'm asking you is, do you ever envision it when it'll actually be like cash? Like it's just instantaneous, like I want to buy Skittles. It doesn't cost me four times what the Skittles cost. It doesn't take 15 minutes. Can, can I hop in on this one? Sure. So you can send someone Bitcoin and they will get it in about two seconds. You don't no, have to wait 15 minutes. No block minutes. confirmations, yeah. You don't need a block confirmation for a bag of Skittles. Sure. Right? Just like when you receive cash from someone for, for some Skittles, are you pulling those cash under a UV light and checking to make sure it's real? No, the risk is low enough that you can accept the cash right away. Same, same with Bitcoin. I don't think that would be a fair complaint. Gotcha. So you guys both think that it's used as peer-to-peer -peer digital cash now. You think it's good enough there. I was just wondering if you thought it was ever going to get better or if it's good enough as it is now or if we're just going to continue to call it a store of value. Well, I think it's good enough now, but there's other technologies like Lightning that's completely trustless, and it's it it can be done instantaneously as well. Uh, now, there there are certain problems with that with uh, you know like channel capacity and value liquidity and things like that that you that we're still trying to work out and figure out. Um, you know, stuff like L2 will probably help with that. But uh, but the uh, things that you're describing as far as like being able to transact very quickly, yeah, it, it's already there. I mean, it's uh, and you know, on on something like Liquid, you can do it in like less than sixty seconds if you wanted to. Um, and like Eric said, like if the amounts are low enough, you're not really going to care whether or not like you you wait for six confirmations or whatever. Um, the the thing is, Bitcoin is mostly used right now as a store of value, and it. it I, I honestly think it should be used mostly as a store of value. If you're if you're using it to transact or whatever, I mean, there are particular cases where that makes sense. But a store of value is the killer app. This, there, like I said before, the you know there aren't very many good stores of value that exist in the world. And Bitcoin is one of the few things that that's actually very, very different um, and allows you to store value. And you don't have to go with the Keynesian mentality of having to spend and uh, increase the velocity of money and, uh, and so on. So um, I like, will it become a method of payment at some point? Possibly. Um, I, I, I think uh, my friend safety says that he, he thinks that the rest of the financial system can adapt to Bitcoin. Uh, like instead of Visa having um, 
you know, settling in dollars, you can settle in Bitcoin just as easily. It's, uh, it's really just changing things on the back end to make that happen. And, and you know, we might see the entire financial structure sort of uh, that, that currently exists migrate over. And, you know, I, that's a possible way in which this can happen, especially if the dollar ends up hyperinflating, which I expect to happen in like two or three more bailouts from now. So, yeah. Anything you want to add, Eric? And then we'll just finish up with final thoughts from both of you and get you on with your way. Yeah, uh, cashiness, like decentralization, is not a black and white thing. There are properties of cash that exist in gradients, and there are properties of decentralization that exist in gradients. Um, just before this chat, I actually paid an invoice for about $1,400 with Bitcoin, and it was so fast and easy. And the, f the fee of 50 or 50 cents or dollar on that doesn't matter because it's a large enough that that's fine. The person received it immediately. Um, it, it is better than cash. I didn't have to take physical cash over to that person and hand it to them. I can send Bitcoin to anyone instantly in the world uh, at near zero cost. The fact that it doesn't work very well for super low transaction amounts, that, that's okay, but that doesn't make it not cash. These are gradients. These are, these are properties and attributes, not, not on-off things that one thing is or is not. Gotcha. And then as far as once people start using the crap out of it, what happens then? Well, that's a so, different question of scalability. I, I, I would, uh, but uh, sorry, uh, did, did you want to finish answering this one? And then I'll jump in. Yeah. So when people start using the crap out of it, so obviously in Bitcoin's case, it can handle a certain transaction throughput every minute. And if that fills up, then the fee will start spiking. And so the, the ratio of usage that work for Bitcoin payments will, will reduce. Um, people will start using other, other cryptos for their smaller payments. And small might mean $1,000, right? There could be a day when a Bitcoin transaction costs $500 to send. That could happen. And in that case, you're not going to use it for a $1,000 payment. You would use some other, some other crypto or you know, something else. That's all part of this whole marketplace working. I think that's what makes it ultimately decentralized and healthy. If we had one chain and it only worked in one way, I think that is a central point of failure. And I think that would be a weaker system overall. I hear you. What do you think, Jimmy? Well, so, uh, yeah, so as far as far as cashiness, as, at least as defined in the white paper, that is black and white. It's either you have a third party intermediary or you don't. And the fact of the matter is with Bitcoin, you don't have a third party intermediary. All of these altcoins you do. Um, uh, you, wait, you have wait, a centralized Jimmy, Jimmy, party Jimmy. that can do that. No, Jimmy, that, I, mean, I, I'm, I, I mean, that's, Jimmy, that's what it saying, is. That's, that's, are you saying on record that every other coin other than Bitcoin has a central intermediary? Is that your is that your assertion? Yeah, uh, because they're centralized. If if you're if you do a transaction on Ethereum and tomorrow that uh, the central Ethe you know the core developers of Ethereum decide, okay, well um, that was for drugs or something, and uh, we we've been uh, we're we're going to hard fork that away and roll that back. They can't. I mean that that that's a that's essentially if, what if it they, means to be a third party intermediary, and they can. They if they could, can roll it back, then it's a. That, they that, could. That, that's a if. If they had a preponderance of community and minor support, they could, and that is exactly the same in Bitcoin. There's no, no fundamental no, no. difference there. It's a question of degree. No, no, no. Yeah, the the fact that they can, they could even sneak it in. I mean, like you wouldn't even know until so like uh, the next, next hard fork or something like that. I mean, they so you're could. I mean, well, how many people are actually looking at the actual source code for Ethereum? I mean, it's uh, other than the core devs. Like they they didn't even catch the fact that they they had to. Uh, uh, a bug from like a, a 
a couple of months ago when they did a hard fork, they had to hard fork like two weeks later because like so few people were looking at the actual uh, source code. I mean, anybody that's competent would have been able to say, okay, well, you know, we forgot to change the uh, reward schedule. Uh, so we, uh, we, we, you know, like we, uh, it should be as uh, part of this hard fork. Instead, they had to do another adjustment two weeks later to do another hard fork. Fact of the matter is, like Ethereum is so complicated that in a sense, if they wanted to, they can go reverse a couple of transactions and then somebody would be like, What's that? what the hell is going on? And then they would have to go and find uh, find out exactly what's going on. Uh, like th this is not very different than say the US government who does all sorts of things and then you only find out many, many years later that they, they actually did su uh, such and such thing that was unjust, if at all. So in a, in a sense, um, the Ethereum community is, is bound by all of these single points of failure. If I if I could go and corrupt what does that mean? Uh, the mem memory, the RAM of uh, uh, of an AWS server that Infura runs on, then I I can go and change whatever like vast majority of services on Ethereum rely on Infura. So if I if I can go and inject there. That's a third-party intermediary as well. If I if I pay you a thousand dollars in Ethereum and then uh, you know or you use Infura to do that, that I mean that's a third-party intermediary. That's that's essentially what it is. Jimmy, Infura is a a third-party service for hosting Ethereum nodes. Those services yep. exist in Bitcoin also. There, no, but, I'm a, vast but I, I'm saying that it's uh, it, more or less because the expense of running an Ethereum node is so high and so difficult, vast majority of services actually rely entirely on Infura. So as a result, they become a single point of failure. And, that, that, and if you can compromise Infura, then you can, comp uh, you, you can essentially be a third-party intermediary in any transaction in Ethereum. I mean, blockchain's difficult anyways. I mean, if you look even at Bitcoin, you got core devs, you know, you've got all the miners. If you look in, I think it was like October of 17, they had an inflation bug that somebody from, a developer from Bitcoin Cash actually found it, you know, as they could have printed as many Bitcoins as they wanted. I mean, just stuff, you know, obviously there's complexities to it. So I think both of them are not immune to it. What do, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, none of these systems are, are perfect. Um, it is really dangerous to assume that Bitcoin is perfectly decentralized and thus pristine and everything else is centralized and thus totally flawed. These are complex systems with pros and cons in each of them and strengths and weaknesses in each of them. And these things change over time. Bitcoin has had vulnerabilities in the past that it doesn't today. Ethereum has had vulnerabilities in the past that it doesn't today. And both of them will likely have vulnerabilities in the future that people need to be mindful of. And saying that the vast majority of Ethereum nodes are in, are in Infura, I don't know that that's factually true, first of all. But even if it was, that's not a central point of failure. That just means that there's a preponderance of nodes in one, one host. That's a risk. That's a danger. That's a matter of degree, not a black and white thing. Gotcha. No, I mean, I, I, either you own your money or you don't. And you can I be own deceived some into Ethereum. thinking that you I, do that. I own some Ethereum and I control the keys for it and I own it. I own some Bitcoin. I control the keys for it and I own it. Well, I, uh, good luck on the, I mean, probably they won't take the money away from you, but it's, it's entirely possible uh, as, as was done in 2016 for the Ethereum developers to just take it, take it away and say, you know what? Um, Eric is a bad actor in the space and we're, uh, and he, he said some nasty things about us. So we're going to fork it away and uh, and take his money and give it to somebody that's more helpful.
something like that. I mean, they, they could do that. I'm not saying they will, but that's within their power so because they, the they, can, they can reset the ledger. Jimmy. So could no, the they couldn't because, it, because I run my own node. And if I, if I run my own node, then it's going to be compatible with uh, whatever no one runs, runs their forward, own node so. in Ethereum. Is that your claim that no one runs their own Ethereum node? Well, no, no, they do, but they have to upgrade anytime the Ethereum uh, core devs release a new hard fork. If they don't, then 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 they're not in in That's sync with the rest of Bitcoin Ethereum. That's true. Also, if the Bitcoin no, core devs not. ever no, release, no, it's not. I, if I can run a zero point seven node, and it, it would still work. I mean, it, it validates uh, everything that can. If there's ever a hard fork, if there's ever a hard fork that the Bitcoin core developers think is appropriate, are you going to switch and then say that Bitcoin is centralized? I think I that would think be that a would very ever happen. foolish. Not too long ago. Okay, I don't think that would happen. The, I mean, like the, if it if it was like an inflation bug and like ninety nine percent of the entire community said that, maybe. But ah, uh, a question I mean, of the, degree. Ninety nine point nine percent. That's the degree. No, I mean that's that's literally like unanimity. Uh, that that that's that, not uh, literally so, unanimity. <laughs> What uh, if somebody? I mean, they could. They could. Essentially, you would have like a fork at that point, and you know that 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 would be up to each individual user. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, this is a hypothetical that you're bringing up to bolster your argument. But it's not going to happen. I mean, like Bitcoin has I hard mean, forked in the past, Jimmy. Bitcoin no, it, has hard it was it was back in 2010, and it's a debate whether or not it was actually so. Hard so, like two years after it got started, kind of like how Ethereum's hard fork happened roughly two years after it got started. I mean, no, you, you're, you're only hard such a every standard. like month. No, it's not a double standard. I, like the 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 hard fork in Bitcoin. What? First of all, I I, I don't concede that it was a hard fork because it's still compatible to like very early clients as long as you make a couple of weeks. Uh, with with Ethereum, if you're running the original client, you are definitely out of sync with everybody else. And even if you're running a client from like uh, three months ago, you're, you're out of sync with everybody else. There, you're you're not master of your own node. You you no, it's true. If you if if you have a hard fork and you don't upgrade, then your node is worthless. It's not it's not in sync with everybody else. That's that's how that's what a hard fork is. It's not backwards compatible, right? I understand. If you that. if you have a if you have soft software that you're running from before, and it's it's not the same as what everyone else's is. Then, if you if you have hard forks like you do in Ethereum and Monero, then you are not master of your own node. You don't control uh, anything really. Uh, like you, you, they can do whatever the hell they want on each hard fork. So, so um, Jimmy, let like, me, can I can I jump in for a second? In Ethereum, as in Bitcoin, if there is a hard fork, every user has a choice of which side of that fork to continue on, right? This is true in Ethereum. This is true in Bitcoin. Now you're correct that Ethereum has had more hard forks than Bitcoin. But again, this comes down to a question of degree. And something hard forking doesn't mean it is centralized. It means the community, the majority of the participants, whether it is the miners or the users or the engineers, are, are hard forking and people are choosing which direction to go to. People who were using Ethereum in 20, early 2016 and didn't like the changes made in the hard fork after the DAO, stuck around with the original code and it's called Ethereum Classic now. The same thing would happen with Bitcoin if a hard fork happened tomorrow and people could choose which of the two halves they wanted to go on. There's not a fundamental difference between these two systems. It is a question of degree and of maturity of the ecosystem. Yeah, we've been going close I for about an hour, guys. Jimmy, you want to think, wrap up with some closing I, I disagree. thoughts? I think, I, I think it, it's a fundamental difference of centralization versus de decentralization. What you have with Ethereum is that you have 
a, a, a group that controls the whole thing that tells everybody else what to do. No, and they call that quote unquote consensus. With Bitcoin, you don't have that. And you have everyone just sort of, uh, you can run whatever node you want. And uh, there's multiple different implementations and so on. If, uh, if, if, if you, you don't have to upgrade if you don't want to, whereas with all of these other things, you pretty much have to. So, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you, you can call it like a question of degree or whatever. I call it sovereignty or non-sovereignty. Uh, with, with all of these other things, you don't have sovereignty over your own stuff. With Bitcoin, you have sovereignty over your own coins. And that's the main difference. And that's the thing that makes Bitcoin different than from fiat. And this is what also makes Bitcoin different than all coins. Gotcha. Anything else you want to add Just kind of a closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's just not factually true. You can go on whatever fork you want and these, chain, <laughs> these chains operate in the same way. There's no, there's no magical holiness to the way that Bitcoin is structured. It just has been doing it longer and it has fewer upgrades than these others. That's all. No, I disagree because Bitcoin hasn't had a no. hard fork. Uh, and basically you, you, you can run it and you, you don't, you get to be in control of what software you run. Um, and it, all of these other coins, essentially, if you don't run the software that the centralized committees uh, tell you to run, then you are out of sync with everyone else and you don't own any of the money that you think you have. Um, Jimmy, you know, there's no centralized committee in Ethereum. You're, you're making up myths. <laughs> who no really sees the committee. software? Who, 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 who made a roadmap code. 2.0? Who made it's a roadmap 2.0? I mean, like, I, like the who, who I like the fact that the Vitalik is releasing it and saying we're going to do this in five to ten years. How long have they been like, uh, you know, delaying proof of stake and stuff like that, right? Like, they, this is it's open this source is, software. I mean, uh, you're you're saying that as if that that in itself, it, uh, like. Uh, argues for you. I, all open source software can be just as centralized or decentralized. It, it, it's up to whatever system it is. For, uh, the fact that it's open source doesn't say anything about its uh, decentralization. It, it just says that there's a repository that everyone can go look at to see what the software says. I mean, like, that, that doesn't say anything about your argument. Jimmy, if you can send me the list of this evil cabal that's in charge of Ethereum, I would very much like to see this list. So I, I, send I, it over. I can tell you right now, it's Vitalik Buterin. That's it. Vitalik he decides Buterin pretty much. Yeah. Decides. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, that's what happened in 2016, so wasn't it? I mean, do you remember what happened with the Dow? There were people that were like, okay, what decision is Vitalik going to make? There were people saying, okay, is he going to say that, uh, you know, uh, is he going to say, okay, well, we'll let this go because code is law, um, or is he going to roll these back because it's bad for the ecosystem? There were people literally asking that question to Vitalik, and then he finally came down with a decree and said, oh, we're going to roll these transactions back with a hard fork, and that, that, that's essentially what happened. I mean, like, do you not remember this? I mean, th this was like clear as day. Like, and there were people Jimmy, debating about this all day long. That's the point. People were debating. It was a debate. It was a community discussion, a hot topic. People disagreed. And Vitalik yeah. does not just sit there on a throne and declare what happens. And if you were involved well, in some of these communities- did. That's exactly what he did. I, I mean, like, regardless, Jimmy, like the, the fact that a small group of people can decide for everybody else or quote unquote learns from the community what's going on, that, that, that itself means that there's a central point of failure. I mean, this is basically what democracy is supposed to be with our Senate and 
president. They're supposed to reflect the will of the people, but they more or less can do whatever the hell they want. And that's kind of the system that we've been running in. So to say that, oh, well, you know, democracy means that, you know, it's decentralized. Um, that, that, that's essentially the argument that you're making here. I, I disagree. Uh can see we're not okay. going to get closure on this at all <laughs> so is there uh, any closing thoughts jimmy you want to you want to leave us with bitcoin is the one thing that is decentralized it's the one money that is decentralized that uh other than uh, i guess if you if you had gold that that would be in the physical realm but in the digital realm bitcoin is the only one and um i i you you can be self-sovereign over your own coins you can control it you don't you can't you don't have a third party that's able to take it away from you because they don't like you um and that that's the main thing is that it, it gives you strong property rights over your own money whereas all of these other systems do not and that's that's why i'm a bitcoin maximalist and that's why i disagree with eric gotcha much eric any closing thoughts yeah um because i advocate decentralization I am not going to ever be a maximalist for one chain. Gotcha. Well, I sure appreciate you both coming on. I know everybody's going to get uh, you know a lot of value out of this. It was it was great hanging out with you guys as always. And um, yeah, stay safe out there. God bless you, and we'll see you. We'll see you right at the next conference, I guess. Welcome back, everybody. What did you think of the fireside chat? Let me know in the comments below. It doesn't sound like we're going to have any kind of consensus between these two anytime soon. Let me know what you think in the comments below. God bless you. Love you. Stay safe. Bang, Crypto Beatles. Uh, thanks for that. That was epic. Epic like always with these, these old schools, these OGs in the game. Um, we are joined right now with Eric Voorhees. Um, he's going to join us for a quick AMA session. Are you there, Eric? I'm here. Hi. Hey, my man. All right, cool. I'm just going to jump in. We've got thousands of people all over the globe. They've been tuning in the last 48 hours for this virtual conference. Um, it's been absolutely epic. Uh, we, we really forecasted many kinds of technical difficulties. Nothing. It went off without a hitch, so it's absolutely crazy. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to ask some, uh, some questions here, uh, and, and they're just going to be random. So, so hopefully we, uh, we get some good ones here. So post having 12 months into the future, where will crypto be? Where will BTC be? Kind of some predictions, maybe uh, 12 months <laughs> from this exact day today. <laughs> okay. Well, I will definitely be wrong because every time I make a price prediction, it's wrong. So that's my caveat. Uh, 12 months from now, I think 80% chance it will be over $50,000. So that'll be great. But obviously, I could totally be wrong, and uh, it's it's always a fool's errand to try to predict these things, but still fun. It's virtually impossible, but it's my favorite question. I always feel dumb when I ask that question in interviews and stuff like that, but uh, it's my favorite topic, uh, and I don't think anybody's... What, what people should do more of, I think, is going back and finding those price predictions from people in the past and then seeing how often they're right, because they will very rarely be right, but... They'll, they'll They're never still be fine, right. and, I, and I don't mind doing that. Yeah, what, what's fun is looking back at the tweets that said, you know, I, I bought Bitcoin at three bucks, and now it's a buck. Oh my god, I can't believe I got into this thing. Um, that that yeah, really badly. <laughs> um, okay, so let let's move on um, to some more questions here. Um, Okay, so listen, it's no secret that you're, you're into decentralized systems. This, this is the important fact here. Um, but maybe there's some altcoins out there that, that aren't, you know, so decentralized or even working there. But regardless of that, what are some of your favorite altcoins out there? So, something that, that you really, really believe in and maybe give us an example of one or two and why. 
Sure. So huge advocate of Bitcoin, obviously, have been for a decade now. Um, I'm a huge advocate of Ethereum. Um, I, more recently, I really like what Binance has done. I love the Binance token. And I as far as a like unique, interesting new chain, I really like Cosmos. Um, so caveat, I, I have positions in all of those coins. Um, Cosmos is, is very cool because uh, it basically will allow people to build different chains that all connect together natively. Uh, and I think that's been something that's missing from the ecosystem. So um, they've been working on that for, you know, four-ish years and it launched a year ago. Um, so bullish there, but that, that would be my, my set. Super. All right. Um, moving on. Let's see. Okay. Here, here's an interesting one. And there's no timeline here. But it's still interesting. You've been in the game forever. You've seen a whole bunch come. I'm sure you're looking at coin market cap year after year going, what the hell are all these things popping up? But which projects do you expect uh, that might be well-known projects that you predict are going to fail and die um, in the next few years, let's say? Um, Bitcoin SV. Nice. So <laughs> I think that's one of them. Um, I think an interesting point here is like coins never really die, which is interesting. Like, I, you know, when Dogecoin came out long ago, um, it was obviously funny and I assumed it would die when the joke kind of wore off. Uh, and yet it, it remains, it's still around. It's still, uh, I don't know what the current market cap is, but um, it's, you know, several millions of dollars. And uh, it just, these coins don't really go away. They just kind of like fall towards zero um, over time. But yeah, I would say Bitcoin SV is the one I'd be most bearish on um, because it's the one that is most scammy with the highest market cap. So it has the farthest to fall as that reality sets in for people. Um, yeah, that's the only one I'm going to make a prediction on. Fair. That, that, that's, a, that's the safe bet. Um, okay, I'm supposed to be indifferent in here. Um, I have a personal question. So ETH 2.0 is coming up. Um, it's a little bit scary as far as I'm concerned with the research with me, the, our, my C CTO and, and everything else. Uh, right when that comes down, are you grabbing a, a bunch of 32 ETH and, and you're, you're, you're going to jump over to ETH 2.0? Or are you going to let things settle and see how things go? And, and wh what do you see there? I, ju I just want your insights. It seems risky yeah. a little bit. And um, yeah, what are your foresights it's a, there? It's a lot of bit risky. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all these cryptos are very risky. People really need to appreciate that. Uh, when I got into Bitcoin 10 years ago, since then up till today, I've always woken up each day and reminded myself how risky and speculative it is and that it could all go to zero. So people need to be in the habit of doing that. And obviously Ethereum is more risky than Bitcoin and Ethereum 2.0 is more risky than Ethereum. So, so be careful. Um, I think a good analogy for this is like, if you're flying a, uh, an airplane and you're trying to upgrade the airplane into a rocket ship while you're flying it. Um, that's kind of what Ethereum is doing. And they may pull it off. They have extremely smart people and they're certainly not rushing anything. So um, I, I give it at least 50% odds that it'll work. And uh, it, it'll be really fascinating because if it happens, you'll end up basically, I think you'll end up with um, Ethereum Classic actually becoming a bigger deal 
not because Ethereum Classic is better than Ethereum necessarily, but it will have a very clear differentiator, which is that Ethereum Classic will remain as the proof of work version of Ethereum and Ethereum itself will, will upgrade into the proof of stake. Um, it's very uncertain, you know, what the long-term trade-offs of proof of stake are. I think the world will have proof of work chains and I think the world will have proof of stake chains. I think both have merit, both have pros and cons. Um, but once Ethereum does that, Ethereum Classic will actually have a, a pretty interesting value proposition, which will be the, the version of Ethereum that, uh, that didn't move to proof of stake and so didn't make those, those trade-offs in their attributes. Cool. All right. That sounds like uh, financial advice. I'm just kidding. No. Um, all right. Cool. Uh, Ethereum Classic. I'm, I'm loading up. Um, okay. So uh, here's a neat one. Um, in your opinion, and you, you've been in the scene for a really long time, um, in your opinion, who is most likely to be Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, the most the most plausible explanation, which isn't really an exciting one, but the most plausible one is that um, that the the three that were involved in the early days uh, were uh, Kleiman, Craig Wright, and then the third one whose name I'm not remembering right now. Um, it seems it seems likely and plausible that Craig Wright was part of what was Satoshi early on. Uh, I also think it's very unlikely that Craig Wright was Satoshi. In other words, Craig Wright equaling Satoshi, I think, is implausible. Craig Wright being involved in a small group of people who was Satoshi uh, is plausible and, and seems like the most likely explanation. But I would not be surprised if that wasn't true either. So it's amazing that it's remained a mystery so long because certainly a lot of people have tried to figure it out and it's never been conclusive at all. Um, and I think it's, it's important and good for Bitcoin generally that the, that the founder is a mystery. I think it helps underscore the fact that this is not about any person. Uh, this is about a technology and it's about what the world does with that technology. Uh, even with Satoshi missing and being unknown, you still see how much people want to talk about Satoshi, uh, because it's nice to be able to, it's nice to be able to simplify all the complexities of Bitcoin down into a, a personality of a person. But that's, I think, missing the point. Uh, the, the point really should be about what the world is doing with this stuff, not about what any single person did with it. Still a darn cool story. <laughs> what a neat part. Um, one quick final question. So Eric, um, you have been working on Shapeshift for the last six years. Is Shapeshift Eric's sole attention long-term or does he have any ambitions to launch a new project uh, anytime soon? Um, no new projects. Yeah, I mean, it is my sole attention, um, with the exception of a little bit of attention in the Theo project. Uh, so that's the foundation for interwallet operability, which um, just went to their main net about a week or two ago. Um, so I sit on the board of the company that built that system, but that's, you know, 2% of my time. Um, Shapeshift is really everything. Awesome. Eric, man, listen, thank you very, very much for being part of Blockdown 2020. Uh, we appreciate you. Um, I, I think you were 
probably one of the biggest stars, if not the biggest star of the whole entire thing. You, you brought in a lot of uh, people, a lot of fans, uh, a lot of numbers. Uh, we appreciate you greatly. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself in these uncertain times, and uh, we hope to see you again very, very soon. Thanks for having me on. Have an awesome day. Take care. All right, guys, the party continues. This is a never-ending party that we're doing here. So we're going to a short break, and when we come back, we have something very, very exciting to show you. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Blockdown Podcast. To connect with us on social media, buy tickets for the next Blockdown event, or find out more about EAK Digital, head to the show notes for further information and links to everything. See you next week.